This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is February 4th, 2021. In today's episode, accounting for the risks and opportunities around climate change has become one of the most prominent issues for investors. Some say it's about time. Others wonder what all the fuss is about. Regardless of where you fall on that spectrum as an investor, though, it is safe to say that climate change, much like Glenn Close and Fatal Attraction, won't be ignored. Now, this isn't the first or the last time we'll talk about climate change on this program, especially as we all head down the road toward the 26th annual United Nations Climate Change Conference this November. Better known as COP26, this year's gathering occurs even as investors are working through the outcome of what was known as COP21, the Paris Agreement. With its goal of limiting global warming to no more than 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. You may have heard mention of it once or twice since then. Many large investors have committed to the so-called greening of their portfolios to align them with the Paris Agreement, along with many of the companies that make up these portfolios. But to hit the two-degree target by the end of this century, every company would have to reduce its total carbon intensity by an average of at least 8% every single year from now on until 2050. That's Linda Elling Lee, head of ESG research at MSCI. Based on our analysis, we're only showing that about 3% of these companies have managed to reduce their carbon emissions at this rate in the last five years. So this is one of these cases where we hope that past performance, at least on carbon emissions reduction, is not really an indication of future performance. The issue here is that investors looking to align with Paris may find they face an ever-shrinking investment pond from which to fish. Let's say an investor that has a diversified equity portfolio, which tracks the MSCI Acqui IMI index. Uh, That's almost 9,000 companies today. Um, And they want this portfolio of companies to be aligned with what countries agree to in the Paris Agreement of keeping the earth to no more than a two degree warming. By 2030, only about 40% of the public equity investment universe that we looked at would actually meet the emissions profile that are aligned to this two degree warming path. It's just not practical for large investors to maintain their large allocations to what would be a smaller and smaller set of companies. This is because of concentration risk, basically diversification's evil twin. Confining the holdings to such a small set of companies would simply do little to address the societal and system-wide challenges that would still exist in the world, the world in which these companies and investors have to operate. But it's not all bad news. While regulation is not always a word investors want to hear, governments and agencies in many parts of the world have stepped up requirements for companies in terms of actions they're taking and what specifically they need to report. This is true for investment firms as well. Now, greater transparency means more data. And as the saying goes, You know, what gets measured gets, gets managed. That's... I'm Thomas Verbraken and I'm uh, based in the, um, in the Budapest office of MSCI. And my focus over the past years has been a lot on, uh, on stress testing. And actually, climate stress testing is now, um, has recently become also part of that, uh, of that effort. Thomas and many others have noted that regulation is part of what's pushing investors forward in terms of assessing climate risk. 
But what are these regulations we're talking about? One of them is the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, or TCFD. In 2017, they published their, their recommendations and they received uh, strong support. So it started mainly um, in, in Europe, the Banque de, de France, uh, Bank of England and the Dutch National Bank, they, they took a, a leadership role um, and they proposed to integrate these uh, TCFD-inspired disclosure guidelines in their supervisory role. Um, and, and that basically was the, the basis of the network for greening the financial system, which has now more than 80 member institutions. And I think one of the, the most interesting recent joiners is the, the U.S. Fed, um, which joined in December 2020. But regulation is only part of the story. Because investors, they, they, you know, they don't only want to um, meet regulatory requirements, they also want to understand the risks involved with their potential investments. And climate risk is becoming increasingly important uh, part of risk management in general. Some regulations go even further. The EU's Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, or SFDR, for example. This requires investment firms to report on climate issues, as well as things like how much more does a company pay its male versus female employees? You might say, as Mike Disabato of MSCI ESG Research and host of the podcast ESG Now actually did say. Everyone is under this umbrella with the SFDR. And uh, I think I also read uh, with this regulation that if a financial institution doesn't adhere to the requests made by the EU and the SFDR, they have to clearly disclose to investors that they are not considering sustainability risks. What does this mean in practice? The big thing here is the regulation affects both companies as well as investors and financial institutions. That's the voice of Arne Klug from MSCI's ESG research team. For example, let's say I'm an investor located in the EU and I hold a company that owns mining assets in areas of high biodiversity loss. I have to report on that risks, meaning I have to get these companies to tell me if they are operating in areas of such risks. And in its conception, the SFDR was set by the European Union to provide greater transparency on the sustainability of financial products and to reveal potential greenwashing. But I think there's a big problem that we're going to see here. There are large gaps between what needs to be disclosed and what is currently disclosed. Zoom in on the biodiversity risks uh, we can see in our peer set, which is the MSCI ACWI uh, Investable Markets Index, that less than 10% of companies currently disclose any bio, uh, biodiversity indicators. Exactly. And the same applies to companies reporting on, for example, exposure to child labor risks. So really strong efforts have to be made to fill these gaps in order to comply with the SFDR. There are also a lot of investors with excellent disclosure practices, but at the same time, there are also many that are new to the game. So the upcoming data requirements pose greater challenges for these new joiners. Another aspect investors will have to sort out is the fact that complying with these new reporting requirements and even doing your best to build and maintain a greener portfolio, well, that doesn't necessarily lead to a greener world. It's important to remember that when you as an investor exclude companies from your own portfolio, you know, you're not counting that emissions in your own portfolio. Um, so you can think that you're not responsible for the emissions that are associated with those companies. But the emissions are actually still being put out there in the real world, and they continue to warm the planet. So, you know, your portfolio may look good, but the world around it really hasn't necessarily changed. Building portfolios that account for climate change, 
That's really what we're talking about, right? Just like Thomas Verbrocken mentioned earlier, investors want to understand the risks involved with potential investments, and climate change is one of those risks. It breaks down to basically two types. There is transition risk, um, which is basically the whole impact of the transition to a greener um, economy. Um, and then there is a the physical risk, which is really the impact of um, you know, more extreme uh, weather events, um, which is basically the outcome of, of climate change itself and its impact to investments. Regular listeners will recognize those risks. We've talked about them with head of the MSCI Climate Center, Oliver Marchand, and a few times with Will Robson, who leads MSCI's real estate research team. You can hear those interviews if you look through the back catalog at MSCI.com. But I digress. We were talking about stress testing. Most people are probably more familiar with stress tests that governments have run on banks, especially in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Essentially, it's creating different scenarios, working them through a model, to see the effects as you increase one factor and dial down another. Governments, when they do this, are looking to assess how much these banks need to have on reserve to withstand certain shocks to the system. I asked Thomas why he felt stress tests were a particularly good tool when it comes to climate change. That's really not a coincidence that stress testing is, is used in this context. First of all, there really is a large uncertainty about the future pathways for, for climate change. We, we don't know how the climate will, uh, will evolve. There is no real precedent for climate change. So it's not that we can look back you know, to historical events to, to learn how it will play out. Um, we really have to do some forward-looking analysis and, and stress testing lends itself really well to that because it allows you to look at ranges of scenarios um, to understand how you know, various potential future outcomes can impact your portfolio. And I think that's why stress testing is really um, a good tool to, to deal with this challenge. Let's take a closer look, starting with transition risk. We looked um, at the, the companies in the MSCI Europe Index. We analyzed um, two climate stabilization goals, um, a 1.5 and a 3 degree temperature rise scenario. Now, the Paris Agreement calls for limiting global warming to 2 degrees. Why not include that scenario? We also have two degree scenarios, so it, it's a scenario which we could run as well. But we thought it's interesting to look at, you know, the two sides of the of the spectrum. But also in the in the Paris Agreement, they have, I mean, they formulate the ambition to um, limit global warming to 1.5 degrees compared to pre-industrial levels. Fair enough, Thomas. Fair enough. Now. What we did is we used our model to assess how companies are impacted um, in those two scenarios. And it was no surprise that carbon-intensive companies were uh, impacted most severely. For example, the, the average energy company is losing about 67% in enterprise value in a 1.5-degree uh, scenario. Enterprise value is considering a company's equity and debt components together for a comprehensive take. But... Um, within a sector, this is partially offset by revenue opportunities coming from um, low-carbon transition or technology opportunities. Um, and examples of those opportunities can be found in the utilities or the automobiles and components industry groups, um, where they can be significant, and it's basically the, the upside potential coming along with uh, a transition. You talked about the industry groups generally, but... 
and that there's variation inside. Can you take us inside a couple of those? What what does it look like within the groups? Um, yes, yeah, so that that's a very good point. I was um, discussing like the, the 67% impact to um, to the average energy company. That that indeed hides the variability inside these industry groups. And so, for example, in the automobile and components industry group, there will be you know specific companies which can really capitalize on. Um, transition to a, a greener economy and they will have a lot of upside potential but those are typically you know uh, fewer companies and um, in general um, the average company could lose more so um, looking inside those industry groups um, and looking at individual companies can can really help to understand who will be the the winners and the and the losers of a transition for physical risk we also ran two scenarios and an average scenario for physical risk and an aggressive um, scenario which is a bit more uh, pessimistic. You immediately see that for the physical risk dimension, all sectors are um, somewhat impacted by physical risk. And, and the reason is that this is mainly driven by location. So, for example, if you have a company with which uh, has facilities close to coastlines, then you have more potential impact from um, from flooding. Maybe one more point I want to add is that compared to transition risk, there, where there's also upside potential, um, with physical risk, it's it's more on the downside. There's there's of course less upside potential um, as you know more extreme weather events will um, will unfold going forward. And if I'm understanding you correctly, it sounds like it's more broad based than with transition risk. That is, like you said, it's it's more dependent on location than which industry group we're looking at. Um, yes, that's accurate. Indeed, uh, in, uh, location is a very important driver. Um, but we still see, uh, you know, some interesting results at the industry group level. For example, energy companies also um, lose more than you know than than other industry groups because um, capital-intensive industries are um, usually more vulnerable to extreme weather events. For example, if you have a power plant which is which is flooded, that's harder to deal with than when you have an, an office location. Uh, what's also interesting is that the second most impacted um, industry group is the food and staples retailing industry group because extreme weather events could also impact them. The food and staples industry, that is a somewhat surprising one. Right. I think the food industry is 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 the best thing to highlight because they are in this tricky situation where they're highly dependent on biodiversity. That's Mike DiCibato again. And here's Arna's response. Sure, I mean, having a healthy ecosystem is essential for mankind. It provides crop pollination, fresh water, oxygen, healthy soil. It controls diseases such as COVID-19 and regulates our climate. In fact, every time we talk about climate change and the Paris Agreement, we also need to talk about biodiversity. Some industries have an outsized impact on biodiversity. If you think of mining or the energy sector, in some industries heavily depend on natural capital for the inputs and operations. And some do both. The food industry is a good example for this one. So food producers are dependent on healthy soil, crop diversity, pollinators, fresh water, and climate stability. At the same time, agriculture contributes to 80% of deforestation globally. And for investors, it makes sense to focus especially on such industries when integrating biodiversity aspects into their investment decisions. Whether it's regulations, the recognition that climate change is the existential threat to the world, the fact that investors have a role to play, or all of the above, getting this right is going to mean agreeing not only on the problem, but on a set of tools that help us get to the solution. Again, regulations get us part of the way. 
but what investors really need are agreed-upon standards of what exactly we're measuring, how we're measuring it, and then this way they can compare apples to apples and make more informed investment decisions. The good news is we're getting there. A couple of years ago, if you told me that the IFRS Foundation trustees were going to do a consultation to establish the Sustainability Standards Board, uh, to be honest, I thought I was probably having a flashback. I've been tilling in these fields for many years. It's been a little bit like uh, Don Quixote. Playing the part of Don Quixote tonight is Robert Eccles, professor at the University of Oxford. Robert published his performance measurement manifesto on this subject 30 years ago. But for inspiration about change in the industry, he looks back more like a century. So if we go back in history to the 1920s, we didn't have standards for financial accounting and financial reporting. In the United States, there was a gazillion little accounting firms. They all had their own accounting standards, their own auditing standards. Companies didn't have to report. SEC comes along and says, well, that's not working out very well, so we're going to have standards. Oh, we can't do that. It's art and science, you know, blah, blah, blah. Companies, we can't report. Competitive advantage. Well, now we got there. We argue about it. It's a contentious process. People make adjustments. Are they really reporting on this? But at least we've got a starting point. We have not had that starting point when it comes to a company's sustainability performance. Now, 30 years after I started banging my head against this wall, we've now come to the point in the business community, the IBC WEF, I think that's important in the you know, investment community, in the regulatory community, that we need to have standards for sustainability reporting, debate about what that term means, just like we have for financial reporting. That is a sea change. It's an enormous sea change. And as we discuss then, should we have an SSB? Should it be done this way? Should it be done that way? Let's not lose sight of the fact that there's a major change that's happened, that the world has recognized the need for standards, mandated reporting requirements, and then let's get down to the kind of hard and messy work of creating those standards. That's all for today. Our thanks to Linda, Thomas, Mike, Arna, and Robert, and of course, to all of you for listening. For more details on climate and ESG trends for 2021, you can catch a replay of the MSCI 2021 ESG Trends webinar, or read Thomas's stress test blog, both on MSCI.com. Next up on Perspectives, we ask what asset owners, some of the world's largest investors, are focused on. Where do they see opportunity? Where do they see risk? And how are they managing day to day? Until then, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.